This time I'd invite you to open your Bibles with you, and it may be helpful during the sermon to keep the Bibles open as well. The sermon this morning will be on John 4, verses 1 through 42, and we will consider this also in the long, larger thrust of John's epistle. Let's read together from John 4, starting at verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey and sat thus by the well, it was about the sixth hour, which is noon, using our clock. A woman of Samaria came in to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you... Being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, Give me to drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living waters. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one with whom now you have is not your husband, and that you spoke truth. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that it is in Jerusalem, the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews." The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now at this point, the disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot 
went away her way into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. And in the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said one to another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to him, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, Lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. Both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. Now many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him. Because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him. And we know that this indeed is the Christ, the Savior of the world. As I mentioned, we hope to consider this passage together this morning, and we'll do so particularly through the lens of verse 11, where the woman says to Jesus, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. The theme for our sermon is, Sir, you don't have a bucket. We'll see that, first of all, this is a woman's accusation. Secondly, we will see that it arouses observers' curiosity And finally, we will look at Jesus' overflowing answer. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, if I asked you, as you came to church this morning, what is your greatest need? What is it that you came to church with this morning, hoping to leave these sanctuary doors somehow different than the way you came in? The book of John, one of the four letters, introduces as Jesus' ministry. And the theme of the book of John is to present the Lord Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. But if you turn back to John 2, you'll see right after introducing Jesus... In in the beginning, in John 2.24, John writes, But Jesus did not commit himself to that because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. You know the question I just asked you? What is your greatest need this morning as you come to church? You may not know the right answer, but Jesus does. And we see that displayed remarkably in the book of John. After John 2, we have John 3, and 
If we had lots of time, I would have read John 3, the story of Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night. But I trust most of you, even children, remember that story. Nicodemus is a leader in Israel. And Jesus has come onto the scene and There's great noise about him, and Nicodemus doesn't know what to make of Jesus, so he comes in the middle of the night to Jesus, and he says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. They have a conversation, and Jesus tells Nicodemus, most assuredly, I tell you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus came to Jesus with a sense that maybe this was the Messiah. Maybe some of the things he had learned about were coming together, but he wasn't sure. He came with a state of confusion, and he came to Jesus addressing him as, Teacher, teach me. But Jesus said to Nicodemus, You think you know your problem. You think your problem is that you need to be taught. But I'm telling you, you've got a bigger problem. You need to be born again. You don't need a teacher. You need a spiritual midwife. You need a father and a mother. You need to be born again. Maybe you came to church this morning thinking you needed to learn more about God and his revelation. But maybe there are some among us who, like Nicodemus, have come thinking they need to learn but really need to be made alive again. Nicodemus, you don't need a teacher. You need a Savior. And after John 3 comes John 4, and we've read that together, the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. Why did she come to Jesus? She really didn't come to Jesus, did she? She was just a woman of Samaria going around about her daily duty, filling up her water pot so that she'd have fresh water. She comes to the well, and there's a strange man there. He enters into a discussion with her. It didn't all make sense to her. She's confused. Jesus talks to her about living water. He could provide her living water and she can't make heads or tails out of what what he is saying. Jesus says to her, woman, if you knew who it was that asked this of you, you would have asked him for living water. Really? Mr. Jewish man stranger, do you know what you're saying? You're sitting here at Jacob's well. It's over 100 feet deep. I don't know anything about you, but you're a stranger on a journey, and you didn't even think enough to take a water jug with you so you could refresh yourself. You're not even taking care of your own basic necessities of life. You come here to lecture me about about this well. Do you know which well this is? This is our father Jacob's well. I know the history of this well. Don't blaspheme our father Jacob. Sir, you don't even have a bucket. Our text is an accusation of disbelief. But there's much to be learned from this accusation. Because I fear 
it exposes also the confusion that can live in our own hearts. Because by nature, we're not always sure what we really need either. And it brings the glorious gospel. Answers from a Savior who provides so much more than our earthly buckets can carry. Well, let's consider this. The theme, sir, you don't have a bucket. First of all, a woman's accusation. Who was this woman? I've already mentioned that we really need to read the book of John as a book as a whole, and if you did that, you would have the contrast between Nicodemus and this woman laid side by each. They both had an encounter with Jesus, and yet, on the one hand, it would appear that they are total opposites. Nicodemus is a respected ruler in Israel. The Samaritan woman is a simple woman. Why is she showing up at noon? She's showing up at noon because she's disgraced socially, because of her failed marriages and relationships. She's a woman who can't walk the street and hold her head up high. She's on the margins of society. It's obvious, but especially the fact that we live in a very different culture, it needs emphasis. Nicodemus was a man. She was a woman. Her word would not even stand in court. She's not a citizen. She's a woman. Nicodemus was a Jew, a leader in Israel. She was a Samaritan. The Jews had Jerusalem in their territory. You remember when the tribes divided? Samaritans are part of the ten tribes. They're not as good. They have this inferiority sense compared to the Jews, and the Jews had a superiority sense compared to the Samaritans. In our text, he has a name. Nicodemus. She remains nameless. We simply know her as the Samaritan woman that Jesus meets as recorded for us in John 4. Nicodemus came in the dark of night to protect his reputation. She came in the light of day not looking for Jesus at all, but she had no reputation to worry about. She boldly and brashly could say whatever came to her mind. Now when you lay these alongside each other, it appears that the point is to highlight the difference. But really what the inspired author is doing is highlighting the similarity, because you know what? They both come to Jesus in exactly the same way. They are sinners in need of of a Savior. Isn't the point the way the passage is laid out? Not to emphasize their difference, but their commonality. The point of John 3 and John 4 is the same. You must be born again. By nature, we don't know that. Neither Nicodemus nor the woman realized their real need. And so it is when they enter into conversation with Jesus, they both respond with 
human, narrow, and materialistic responses. Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again. And he says, what? I'm a grown man. Am I supposed to get back into my mother's womb? How does this work? It makes no sense. He tells the woman, woman, what you need from me is living water so you'll never thirst again. And he, what? You don't even have a bucket. It makes no sense. But isn't it true that when we come, even when we come to church, we often have no real sense of our own need? That's the character of sin. The Bible teaches us that sin is not only what we do. Children, we often think about that, don't we? We read the Ten Commandments this morning. I don't know, maybe, maybe as I was reading the Ten Commandments, you were going through your head. Did you kill anybody this week? No. Did you commit adultery? Did you steal? Did you lie? Did you use God's name in vain? Are you keeping the Sabbath day holy? Well, you can look at that and you can say, you know what, actually I'm pretty good, aren't I? Or maybe, maybe you, you've been through Sunday school and catechism and you remember the fact that no, it's not just doing these things, it's thinking about these things. It's, it's not only what we do, it's also what we fail to do. And then you realize, oh, wait a minute, I'm not as good as I thought I was. But so often we think of sin as what we do or what we fail to do. But the Bible describes sin in starker terms. It talks about sin as being spiritually dead. It talks about sin as blindness. And what we have here are two people who are in the right place. They are talking to Jesus. We might say they are like you this morning in church under the word of God. And yet they're mistaken about what is their need. You know what's remarkable? I started drawing your attention to John 2, 24. You see, Jesus doesn't only know the answer to our needs. But as demonstrated in our passage, he knows our needs themselves. John 2, 24, he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And even this this morning, he knows what's in your heart. I don't know how you answered the question in your own head when I began, why did you come to church this morning? What is your greatest need? But this I know, he knows the answer. Well, how many of us came to church this morning ready to define our needs as something that could be filled with our own buckets? Yes, if we're going to focus on the metaphor of the bucket as it is in this passage You may have noticed at the end, she leaves her bucket behind. She came prepared with a bucket. 
Jesus may sit at the side of the well with no bucket, but she came. If we look at the word that's used for bucket, it's the same one as was used at the wedding of Cana. It's a big bucket. It's probably more like a keg in terms of its size. It's one of those buckets that would have contained an entire day's supply of water for her. She came prepared to get what she needed. Water from the well so she had something to drink. How often is it that we come to church with our own buckets? We come to church and we think that we have good works to offer God. We come to church and we drive by our neighbors who aren't going to church and we somehow feel that we're a little better than they are. We come to church and we go to the right church because we know this one's got its doctrinal eyes dotted and T's crossed and the one down the street doesn't and we're a little better than they are. Maybe we came to church this morning with our buckets filled, ready to give God what he needs in terms of worship and praise. Oh, I could go on. There are so many things in our own hearts, our own sinful hearts that are ready to credit ourselves with our own religion before God. And in a sense, we are, when we do that, no different. This woman who hears the gospel call from Jesus, hears the offer of refreshing water, and the best she can do is accuse him. Essentially say, sir, you have no clue of what you're talking about. You don't even have a bucket. But in our text, there's not just this woman and Jesus. There are two other groups we need to pay attention to, and we see that in our second point. It arouses observers' curiosities. There are the disciples, and there are the townspeople also who are part of the story. Now, we're not told the original meeting of the disciples. When John, at the beginning of the story, tells us, he tells Jesus is tired, he's sitting alone at a well, for the disciples had gone to town to get some food. But very shortly after the disciples go to town, the Samaritan woman comes from town. And so there's an unseen and unreported encounter between the woman and the disciples on the road between the well and the town. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us anything that happened. We need to be careful not to speculate. At the same time, we know from the attitudes of Jews and the attitudes of Samaritans and their social place that an encounter like that was not likely to be a friendly one. They were a dozen men, Jews. I would expect they would have marched down the road as if they owned it. She was a marginalized woman, carrying a big pot, most likely on her head. She's likely the one who had to go to the ditch and let them by. Was she scared of them? Ordinarily, women in that culture did not walk roads alone. 
The rest of the women came in the morning and the evening, and they came in groups. Why? Because in that culture, it wasn't all that safe for a woman to be out alone. Remains true in many cultures even today, but especially then. And especially strange and foreign men who were beyond the reach of the law. Within the culture, it would have not been unusual for single women when they were met by strangers on a road, isolated, to have very unseemly things happen to them. We don't know. But my suspicion, given the culture, is that when she first saw those disciples, this is what is likely running through her mind. She's afraid of them. Verse 27, we have an account of when the disciples come back. What does it say then? Comes, they come back and they see Jesus sitting, the stone at the side of Jacob's well, talking to the woman. At this point, the disciples came and they marveled that he talked to the woman. The very fact that they marveled suggests they themselves did not talk to the woman when they met her. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to him? They are as confused about the fact that Jesus would talk to a Samaritan woman as the woman herself was made no sense to them. And the disciples, they're not concerned at all about the woman because the woman, the disciples come and the account says she leaves her water pot behind and goes to town. And then the disciples have a discussion with Jesus. They don't talk about the woman. They're concerned if he had anything to eat. And when he says he had food, they did not know where it came from. They are in wonderment. How did he get his food? They didn't know how he would have had a drink of water either without a bucket. And Jesus answers with an expression of obedience to his Father. It says in verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. My food isn't, first of all, what I eat. It's my task. It's what I do. I will do the will of him who sent me. Jesus' obedience to his Father is an active obedience. It was foretold already in the psalm, Psalm 40, verse 5, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, I come to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. There the psalmist is, is portraying what, what Jesus would come, would feel as the Son of God. We don't have time to go into the full length of Jesus' discussion with the disciples, but he admonishes them. He says, do you see the fields are white for the harvest? You don't even see this Samaritan woman sitting 
at the edge of Jacob's well as an object of God's love and of God's grace. You have so much to learn yourselves. Yes, you may be my disciples, but you're not even seeing with gospel eyes. And then there are the townsfolk. The woman leaves, and in verse 28, we have the account of her going. And the first thing she does is witness about Jesus. What's the result of her witness? They came out of the city and came to him. We easily read over with that. It's one of the reasons why I highlighted what that woman's social stature would be. They're not used to listening to this woman at all. Had she gone to court and said, somebody kill, I saw somebody kill someone else, it would not have counted. A man would have had to see it before the judge would take note. She's a woman. And she's a marginalized one at that. Oh, you know what they said in the sound of Sychar behind her back? Don't be like that woman. Five husbands. She can't keep a man. She's morally loose. Stay away from her. And yet she comes. And she tells them she met Jesus. And what do we read? We read they came out of the city and came to him. Verse 39, many of the townsfolk believed. They urged Jesus to say for two more days. Jesus teaches them. And many more believe. There's a revival in Sychar. There are many believers. Where did that come from? It came from the Word. The power of the Word. Jesus didn't need a bucket to give them living water. Indeed, the Word, the Gospel Word that came from Jesus was powerful enough to quench the thirst of their parched souls. We come to our final point. Jesus' overflowing answer. I painted a picture for you. I've tried to paint a picture of a woman and Jesus, the disciples, the townsfolk. How does this all come together? Let's go back to the beginning of the story. Did you notice as we read... We have the story of Nicodemus. A number of people in Judea are believing. Therefore, Jesus had to go. He left Judea. He goes to Galilee. And it says in verse 4, he must needs go through Samaria. If you're unfamiliar with the geography of the area, you may think, well, that was the road he had to go. And indeed, going directly from the south to Judea to Samaria is the most direct route. But it's not the route that Jews usually took. Because Jews wanted nothing to do with Samaritans. There was hostility. There was tension between them. Ordinarily, if you were going from Judea to Samaria, you would go on the east side of the Jordan until you were past, and then at the top end go back over. It's a little longer, but it avoided the Samaritans. And so when our text says he must needs go through Samaria, it's not talking about this is the most convenient geographic route. 
No, the inspired writer of the Scriptures is pulling back, as it were, our eyes to see that there's an appointment on the divine calendar. This is a story of the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is difficult for many to comprehend. And especially those who are raised in Reformed circles want to use it as an excuse. I'm not saved. I can't do anything about it. God has to save me. Oh, usually young people who are not serious about their faith when the elder comes to them is a little more polite in the language that they use. But variations of that have been said many times by many free Reformed people. I'm born and raised in the church, but I can't come. It's the sovereignty of God. He's got to do it. It's not my fault. On one hand, they're right. Theologically, we believe in the sovereignty of God. We are dead in trespasses and sins, and unless God does a miracle in our lives, we cannot be saved. True. But let me ask you, how did this woman learn about the sovereignty of God? She was doing her daily business, wasn't she? She got up that morning with no clue of what was on the agenda. She got up, took her water pot, as she did every other morning, and went at noontime to the well to fill it up. And she engaged in a stranger with a, conver- a stranger in a conversation. And again, she had no need. She didn't come to Jesus. Oh, Jesus, come save me. Here is my need. You are the Savior. But 28 verses later, she's leaving that water bucket behind and she's going to the town and saying, here's a man who told me all I did. Cannot this be the Messiah? There are appointments on the divine calendar that end up looking like everyday life to those they most involve. And this morning, you have an appointment on the divine calendar. It's no accident you were in church this morning. It's no accident that you're hearing a gospel message. And the Spirit is coming to you this morning and saying, if you are dead in your trespasses and sins, there's a gospel for you. There's a Christ being offered. Is there someone here this morning who's been coming to church very regularly, very faithfully, but avoiding the core questions of what they need? Now, there's no one way. Nicodemus proactively came in the middle of the night. This woman comes in the routines of her day. The Samaritans had no clue at all what was coming, and yet we read that many believed. God's sovereignty isn't a formula. But God's sovereignty is what gives us hope. If it wasn't for the sovereignty of God, the world would be a spiritual cemetery and we all would be in our graves. 
The life of the gospel comes when preachers come with the good news and the Holy Spirit makes dead sinners alive. It's the sovereignty of God that's the only reason we have hope. Secondly, this, this overflowing grace is not only sovereign grace. Secondly, we see it's misunderstood divine grace. Oh, it wasn't easy for her to figure it out. As a matter of fact, as we've noted in our first point, when Jesus began to engage her, she responded with an accusation. She thought she was in the right at Jacob's well, but she should have known better, shouldn't she? She knew it was Jacob's well. If she knew her scripture, she would have known from Isaiah 12, 3, that with joy you will draw waters from the well of salvation. She might have been familiar with the psalm we sang, as the deer thirsts for the water, streams of water, so my soul longs for you, O living God. She might have been familiar with the warning from Jeremiah 2, 13, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, cisterns which cannot hold water. And oh, she might have been familiar with the glorious gospel message of Isaiah 55. Ho, everyone that thirsts, come ye to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Isn't that true for you also this morning? The gospel message is there, but we easily misunderstand it, don't we? Not only is the gospel sometimes misunderstood, thirdly, it is life-giving. She may misunderstand it, but the dependence, her faith does not depend on her perfect understanding. She came to a well for water, and in verse 10, Jesus offers her living water. She's amazed. How can you give it to me without a bucket? Verse 14, whoever drinks of this water, it will become in him a spring of life, welling up to eternal life. Oh, there's a whole sermon here, isn't there, of once the water is in us, how the Holy Spirit causes it to be like a spring to refresh itself when you don't even need a bucket. Children, have you ever seen a spring? Water coming up out of the ground? If you have to get a pail of water, it's way easier to go to a spring, isn't it, and put it under the fountain than it is to go to the well and have to put your bucket on a long rope and go down and get it. Fourthly, this grace is a truth-exposing grace. One of the things you notice about springs is the area around them is usually very muddy. Why is that? You say, well, that's because there's dirt there and it's water on the dirt. But when water, it's one, a dirt itself, dry dirt, is dirty in itself. But when you put water on it, it becomes especially dirty and muddy. Yes, the gospel spring does have that feature to it. When Jesus interacts with the woman, she says, he says to her, go call your husband. She tries to cover it up. I've got no husband. Doesn't tell Jesus that she's living with a man as if he was her husband. She doesn't tell Jesus that she's had many husbands. She tries to change the topic. But the gospel doesn't let us run from sin. 
The gospel doesn't pretend that sin doesn't exist. It deals with sin. And here this woman who is on the margins of the town very shortly after speaking with Jesus is giving the courage to go to the town. And what's her witness to her neighbors who yesterday didn't even want to give her a glance? I've met a man who told me everything I've done. Now you can read some commentaries on this and they attempt to explain it away with dealings of history of Samaria and Judah. I recommend that we leave aside those commentaries and go along with the, those that would appear to align with what I, seems to me the very plain teaching here in Scripture. That when the living water of Christ comes, it has cleansing power. And yes, the cleansing power exposes sin. But that's what makes it good news. It doesn't bury it in a closet. It doesn't put it under the carpet so we have to trip over it. It deals with it. We're all sinners and in need of grace. There's none that does good, no, not one. All have sinned and come short to the glory of God. And salvation's offered to all. Jesus has a discussion with her that's recorded in verses 19 to 24. There's a lot of sermons that have been preached about what this, the implications of this for worship. But let's not let the focus on worship that we can draw from these texts take us from the main and clear confusion. Jesus ends talking about the fact that we worship in spirit and in truth the one living and true God, and then he says those comforting words. I who speak to you am he. Woman, if you believe in me about all that you have done, if you believe in me that I have wells of living water that I don't need a bucket to get, then you'll be saved by my overflowing grace. I began with the question, what did you need? What's your greatest need as you came to church this morning? Well, this is a congregation of Orthodox folks. We're well settled in our routine. Some of us probably just came thinking we need our regular spiritual food. Three meals a day, daily devotions, twice a week to church. It's just the right thing to do. We came with our own buckets. We wanted to leave them filled for another week. Perhaps there are some who came not so much out of a sense of need, but out of duty and routine. Maybe we came mindlessly or even somewhat resentfully this morning. Something else you'd rather have done, but it's 9 o'clock, Sunday morning. This is where I'm supposed to be. Well, you've come to the right place. This is Jacob's well. This is where Jews and Samaritans who have no dealings with others, but they both came. It's a place of history. It's a place of God's covenant promises. But that's not what you need to depend on. You need to depend on he who is at the well. He who says, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. 
Maybe there are some who came this morning hurting, uncertain, needing teaching. Well, that's there. The Samaritans came and urged Jesus to say, and he stayed for two days. The power of his teaching was many more believed. This woman came with all of the hurts. She came at noon. She'd moved past her previous husband's. I don't doubt that there were all sorts of angst and needs and questions in her heart as she came to the well that noonday. Whatever your need this morning, and whatever that woman's need, and whatever Nicodemus's need, we have the comfort of God's word that he knows our need. You may have come looking for something else. What I'm called to bring you this morning is living water without a bucket. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. The water I will, beco- I will give will become in you a fountain of water springing up to life eternal. How do you get this water? Not with a bucket, but with belief. Faith. Verse 21, the woman believed. God is spirit. Those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. The woman says, I know Messiah is coming. Jesus spoke those glorious words to her. I am he. What do we read in verse 28? The woman left behind her bucket. She went to the city. Go with the woman this morning. Leave your buckets of doctrine, your buckets of expectation, whatever buckets it is that you came wanting to get filled this morning, leave them behind. Believe in the Savior. He knows your need. And he comes with living water for your desert dry and thirsty souls. Will you not ask him this morning to serve you living water? Refresh us, O Lord, for the first time or again. Give us the water that we can't reach with our own buckets. Some of you may know the song by Keith and Christian Getty, Living Waters. Are you thirsty? Are you empty? Come and drink these living waters, time unbroken, peace unspoken. Rest beside these living waters. Christ is calling. Find refreshing at the cross of living waters. Lay your life down. On thee all come. Rise up in these living waters. Spirit moving, mercy washing, healing in these living waters. Lead your children to the shoreline. Life is in these living waters. There's a river that flows with mercy and love, bringing joy to the city of our God. There our hope is secure. Do not fear anymore. Praise the Lord of living waters. Are you thirsty? Are you empty? Come and drink these living waters. Love, forgiveness, vast and boundless. Christ He is our living waters. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we read passages of Scripture that we think we're familiar with and you strike us. The simple mention of a bucket. And we dig and we find out in that bucket an accusation which exposes our own hearts. 
Lord, how we are ready to dismiss the sovereign buckets that you come with and replace them with our own buckets of whatever form. But what a glorious teaching it is when we see how you don't need the buckets. But Lord, that in your sovereign, overflowing grace, you give us fountains and springs in us that we may live to the honor and glory of your name. Work with your spirit, apply the word to each as we have need. We thank you for the blessing of worship. Forgive the sins of worship. Bring us to our homes. Bring us back this afternoon. Be with Pastor Bergson as he's called to lead the service. Lord, grant that our worship may be a foretaste of that eternal worship. We pray for Jesus' sake only. Amen.